CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Stud Show, the radio show where we talk about comics. Um, this week's guests, Kent Worcester? Worcester. Worcester. Uh, terrible that way. And um, the always present uh, Jeet here, who I uh, was mentioning before uh, we got started, that he has probably been on the most other than the actual hosts of the show. Uh, distinction that I'm yeah. proud of. Yes, and we're happy to have you again. This will be time number four. You'll be like our Alec Baldwin at one point. Um, that's my bad Saturday Night Live joke. Um, CITR 101.9 FM. Um, today, I think it's kind of an appropriate uh, subject matter for the show, considering the time of the year, if you are in school. Yesterday was the last day of classes, and I'm walking to the station today on campus. In the, They had a big party yesterday, and there's a field of discarded beer cups and stuff so i guess we're having the academic hangover with a talk about a comic studies reader um this is a book 
that Kenton Jeet uh, edited for University Press of Mississippi, who've been doing a lot of kind of, I guess, books about comics and about comic creators, the publisher. Um, and this will be the second book that you guys put together, right? That's right, yeah. we are Four years ago, we did another book called Arguing Comics, which I guess we can now see was a prequel to our, uh, the comic <laughs> studies reader. It's, uh, it uh, was a collection of essays from the early 20th century um, of uh, very distinguished writers like Thomas Mann and Dorothy Parker and E.E. E. Cummings uh, writing about comics. So uh, the comic studies reader, uh, which is the sequel, uh, deals with uh, sort of living, con- for the most part, living contemporary writers and uh, who are currently engaged in scholarship on comics. The the great part about it is it's it's a specific comic based scholarship on comics. Like it's it's people that are um, knowledgeable about the media and comfortable with the media. And they know what they're talking about, or the medium, I should say. And it's because right now I'm in school and doing courses and yada, yada. And we did one course on uh, comics. It's the student-directed seminar course. And we read all these papers for it. And they were all basically kind of outsider look of comics, like placing comics in other contexts. But I guess I kind of feel like this, the point of it is comics within its own context as a discipline of study. Yeah, I mean, Kent might want to speak to that as well, but I think one of the reasons we wanted to do that, the, this book is that there has been a change. And I think in the, the earlier book, Arguing Comics, uh, it was basically people who were um, experts in other fields, who were distinguished writers or uh, art critics like Clement Greenberg, and then sort of dipped into comics and wrote the occasional incidental piece in comics. Whereas now some, uh, there has been a shift where there's like much more, it's not the, sort of a hobby or something that uh, people moonlight as, but there, there are people who have done like a sort of significant body of work, and they're interested in comics for their own sake, rather than comics to introduce, um, to illustrate a cultural point. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, not, not to say, I think there's some value in the outsider view. Like, there's something really useful in getting someone who, you know, doesn't read comics 24-7 to come in and, and uh, uh, write about mouse. But on the other hand, there's also an advantage, as you say, to, to have people who know the history and who are writing um, more uh, an internal dialogue. Kent, do you want to say something on that? Oh, there's so many threads to this story. I mean, one thing we wanted to include and that we are aware of when we were working on arguing comics is how much cartoonists themselves have sort of contributed to this conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, we definitely don't want to, um, you know, reify uh, the distinction between the sort of scholar uh, who observes and the creator who, uh, who makes. Um, so Spiegelman and a whole group of cartoonists, Chris Ware and so on and so forth, are part of the sort of intellectual history of comics as well as the commercial and creative history of comics. Mm-hmm. Guys like Will Eisner and to some mm-hmm. extent Scott McCloud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a very interesting thing about uh, comics, and we try to we get a little bit into it in the, in the reader by having Spiegelman. Uh, in there, but I mean, yeah, some of the best and most interesting writing about comics is coming from cartoonists themselves, and uh, that's um, that also, as, as you say, uh, it's a point of view uh, that's very much enriched by experience and uh, enriched by doing. And and one of the interesting things about people like McLeod and Spiegelman is 
that they're not just like you know offering how-to tips, you know, like how to letter, yeah. <laughs> how to color, but they're actually like very theoretical in terms of thinking about like how comics work and uh, what is the la- specific language of comics. Uh, so yeah. I think I think that it's a very rich conversation, uh, and that's something that we really try to capture in the book. That there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of different voices out there coming from many different perspectives, and uh, uh, our book sort of offers a snapshot of how the conversation stands right now. You're going to jump in with something there, Ken. Yeah. Um, It's funny. I now think that there's probably such an enormous outpouring of scholarship that's happened just within the last couple of years that, in a way, what we've done is provided a snapshot of uh, scholarship up to Mm -hmm. the present. And, um, you know, in a way, our books capture this kind of um, growing amount of material, right, where Arguing Comics captures, you know, maybe hopefully the best of what is a fairly small amount of output. And then Comic Studies Reader looks at the period with a lot of emphasis on kind of the gains of the 90s and it's how kind of the, were expressed. The Comics uh, Journal era. Yeah, in the last 10 or 15 years. And then just in the last couple of years, writing on the web, um, some of the stuff that's been done on cognitive science and uh, comics, there's, there's a whole lot that I think will become important or will be seen as important that we didn't actually capture in the Comic Studies Reader. Um, but I think we already did a lot in the Comic Studies Reader, and uh, I just don't know how we're going to follow up with a third <laughs> book because uh, the outpouring of interest now, it seems to me, has really um, accelerated enormously. Can I just get a context of maybe both of your backgrounds coming into putting these collections together? Because I don't know anything about you, Kent. Mm-hmm. So do you have, I don't want to be careful using the phrase, but like academic qualifications or? <laughs> uh, I'm an academic. I didn't work on comics as an academic. I did a dissertation on British politics, and I'm a tenured in political science um, I mostly teach courses on political theory. Um, I have a kind of great books approach, so I read and assign a lot of uh, well-known authors from Plato through Adam Smith, Karl Marx, and that sort of thing. Um, When I was doing my dissertation, I stayed at a flat in London where one of the people knew a lot about comics. This was in the um, period when... um, Swamp Thing and uh, very early uh, Watchmen, the first issues of Watchmen were coming out. Mm-hmm. And um, through his circle, I met a lot of fascinating people. I spent a day with Alan Moore in the uh, mid-80s and um, met Neil Gaiman when he was just starting out. Back when he was doing Duran Duran biographies. That's right. And, right. and um, became interested in comics, started writing for the Comics Journal in the mid-90s. And um, at this point, I think of my teaching as a day job and comics as the, <laughs> you know, the real action. Well, I should, I should mention in Kent's case that there is a sort of connection with the academic background because Kent wrote a very good book on uh, C.L.R. James, who is um, a, a Marxist writer from uh, Trinidad and a very interesting uh, thinker because he really applied sort of the insights of the sort of Marxist tradition looking at popular culture, and he, uh, C.L.R. James wrote a great book on cricket and, like, the, the sort of meaning of cricket. And, uh, and he also wrote a little bit on comics, and we have him in the Comic Studies Reader. So I, I sort of think that the, 
uh, background uh, that Kent has um, uh, in writing about James uh, has really uh, also pro- probably took him into the comics world as well. Am I right about that? I think it makes a lot of sense. James is a very flexible, uh, supple thinker, and um, he had a kind of sympathetic approach to culture, not in the way that cultural studies sometimes does, sort of celebrating the uh, kind of radicalness of some particular piece of commerce, uh, but more that he was just very sympathetic to popular culture when it uh, had some kind of serious uh, connection to the audience. And um, so he was struck by uh, how people would respond in letters and so on to daily strips and how they would talk about them as if they were kind of part of their lives. Um, he also had a great deal of sympathy for uh, the kind of commercial artist trying to say something valuable in the context of this kind of American hucksterism. Mm-hmm. And that's a story that, of course, uh, comics um, tells historically many times. Sure, yeah, I mean, that's the story of Jack Kirby's life. Well, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah exactly. I, I had one guest once say, basically, mainstream comics is its commercial design, your graphic design. You're working with a product, and you're selling that product, and hopefully you can do something interesting with it, like... Jack Kirby or Al Moore, one of these fantastic guys, or it'll be one of the massive white boxes of useless. Uh... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think uh, my uh, dealings with comics are perhaps a bit more direct than uh, Kent because I was uh, you know, doing a PhD and I've taken as a subject Little Orphan Annie, so that means that a lot of my sort of academic research has been on comics, but I think... Um, Perhaps uh, another factor, and, and this applies, I think, to Kent as well, is that um, I do a lot of writing uh, journalistically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, uh, for the National Post and for the Boston Globe and many other publications, and what I found is that comics are a very good way of uh, opening the door into, like, sort of contemporary culture, you know, like that we're living in a period where there's a lot of good, exciting comics. There's, like, a lot of cartoonists like Sass and uh, Chester Brown and uh, Chris Ware, and there's a lot of reprinting of older comics, some of which I'm also involved with. And, and so in some ways, if, you're, if you want to write for a broad audience, uh, comics are a good way of do, doing that. And I think for, with Kent as well, like, I think one of the things that uh, comics has allowed Kent to do is to write for a non-academic audience. I mean, he, he writes uh, for a lot of academic journals, but he also is uh, one of the major reviewers for the Comics Journal. Uh, and uh, he also is involved with a political journal called New Politics, which is... On I've the probably hand, cited it in papers. Huh? I've probably cited that actual journal in papers before. <laughs> yeah, 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 which is a very sort of serious political journal, but Kent has brought comics into New Politics, where he's like interviewed people like Harvey Pitar and Peter Cooper. So um, I think that in one way um, that we both have in common is that comics... Um, sort of have allowed us to gain an audience that's broader than the sort of normal academic audience. <laughs> uh, well, no, which I think is really important. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's important to have the to mm-hmm. academic work and to do scholarship that's read by other scholars, but I think that uh, there's also a value for, you know, people who have our sort of training and background to be addressing a larger uh, public. I mean, they, Kent, wouldn't you say that, like, I think for you, part of the pleasure of writing for something like the Comics Journal is that you, you get read by, you know, <laughs> <people aren't just laughs> professors? Yeah, and, and and there's a different um, 
way of writing, and, and I'm more conscious of the craft of writing, um, maybe more self-conscious. I think one of the things that, uh, because Jeet and I both have fairly eclectic backgrounds and, and have written for different audiences, uh, one thing we didn't want to do was use this uh, book, The Comic Studies Reader, as an occasion to kind of police the academy, to say that, well, you have to be a tenured professor, or, well, we're only looking for scholarship that comes out of the major research mm-hmm. universities, or, well, we're only looking for the humanities, so if you teach somewhere else yeah. uh, in sociology, say, then we don't want you. Um, you know, we really were indifferent to kind of where people were professionally when we thought about this book. Well, do you see comics in itself? Because it's still, like, academically, it's not really thrown in yet. And it's kind of like a multidisciplinary study, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, as much as, like, you know, literature is an English department or a literature department, comics, it's, I guess, a lot of it, people, like, I know at Simon Fraser University, it's taken up in the... I think in the, try to remember the cultural studies department yeah. and stuff. And at UBC, where I'm at, University of British Columbia, the course, there is no real comics course except um, student directed seminar courses. And this year it was in the women's studies department, more the gender studies oh. department, oh. Uh, because it was a, a couple of students wanted to do a course and they decided to direct it on studying, looking at the role of women in comics and looking at characterization of women in comics. Um, but still, it's like, how it can be looked at through, I guess, these different lenses. Yeah, I think you made a really good point, and something that's really reflected in our study, because um, if, you're, if you want to do film, it, many universities you can have film studies, and if you want to study literature, many universities have English departments or um, a comparative literature or French departments, mm-hmm. whereas if you want to do comics, uh, you, can go and you can be in many different places. You can be in English. You could be in cultural studies, you can be in history, you can be in sociology. And um, I, I look at that as a strength. I mean, there are people who are now currently doing comics uh, scholarship who say, well, we should have comic studies programs and people should be able to, like, you know, d- get a degree in comic studies. Uh, <laughs> in comicsology. I, I, <laughs> I actually don't think that that's a good idea at this point. Um, I actually think that it's one of the strengths of comics that um, it's a sort of hybrid form. It's a mongrel form, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like as Barack Obama said about himself, I'm a mutt. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so comics are mutt art. Like they they, they include um, our mutt and Jeff art. They include, <laughs> you know, not just uh, words, uh, but also words and pictures. Uh, they exist in a, a commercial framework. Uh, they're, uh, you know, like sort of printed material. They have a huge sort of sociological and historical importance. So it, it's a really great and interesting thing about comics that you can, you know, uh, approach them from many different points of view. And in, in our study, we, um, we, you know, we included people who are sort of like art historians, uh, like David Kunzel, mm-hmm. as well as people who are coming out of communications like John A. Lant, and people who are historians like Anne Rubinstein. So, so I think that um, it's, uh, and people who are artists like Art Spiegelman. So I, I think um, it's a real strength of comics that uh, they don't have a home yet. Even myself, uh, in my own academic studies, I, uh, as much as I can, as much as the professors will allow me, I try and, I'm a history major, so I try and do my papers on how uh, comics will have a certain context within, like I'm doing a Reformation course, so I did a th- paper about 15th century woodcuts, another course on early uh, 19th or 20th century world politics, so I did a paper about Russian uh, comic uh, editorials, 
and propaganda and such. And, you know, it's interesting how you can throw that all in and mix it up all together and kind of have it in the different aspects. Well, there's definitely a larger agenda to the books that Jeet and I have worked on, the Arguing Comics and now the Comic Studies Reader. Um, you know, in a way, the Arguing Comics book was to uh, perhaps undermine the kind of assumption on the part of cultural studies that cultural studies was a kind of current innovation and that before the 1980s, people didn't really study culture or know anything about it. They were all doing economics and history and, uh, you know, diplomatic or military history. And um, with the second book, you know, we wanted to show that there was just a lot of smart writing on comics. And um, I think that high, you know, a sort of value strategy is better than uh, simply uh, insisting that comics are important or that comics are mass medium. I mean, there is this painful irony that, of course, uh, mainstream comics are declining just as comic studies is... <laughs> merging and you know a superman comic that sold i don't know half a million copies in the 70s might now sell 60,000 yeah um and the numbers may be more uh skewed than 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 that um so we definitely wanted a book that um didn't depend on one school of thought or one genre uh or one discipline to make the case for comics but that could hopefully stand up so that somebody from outside of this who didn't have an interest in it would look at it and say, well, this is clearly a sort of serious book that looks at a whole range of material. Yeah, and I, I should add something else. Like, in, in some ways, um, the comic studies, it's sort of fortunate that it's come into its own in the last 10 years because it's come into its own at a time when the sort of uh, the boundaries between disciplines is breaking down so that people who are now doing English are much more conscious of the fact that um, books are an artifact and that someone like Dickens was heavily illustrated. Mm-hmm. Thackeray was illustrated. So people who are doing And English serialized. Are, huh? And, and serialized. Yeah. And serialized, yeah. And so people who are doing literature, exactly, uh, can now sort of see Dickens as sort of a proto-comics. Proto um, and uh, so, so, so the hybrid... Um, and, and so if you're studying uh, English now, you don't just study English. It's sometimes useful to know art history. So comics, the fact that you have to have a multidisciplinary approach to understand comics um, comes at an opportune time because it's exactly at the time when the academy as a whole um, is developing, you know, sort of um, multidisciplinary approaches to, um, to cultural artifacts. Uh, so, so in some ways, the, um, uh, the comics uh, uh, both benefit from that and, and are part of this change. And they're also part of this larger change in the academy where people are much more aware of visual culture um, as uh, uh, something that's very real and potent and has been ignored. I mean, there's a huge bias in literary studies and in history towards textuality, towards, like, you know, going into the archives and reading documents or reading old books and um, ignoring the fact that there's a you know, vast sphere of culture that is uh, visual. And just as, uh, so in the last, you know, 20 years, there's been a turn towards the visual in the academy where people are trying to think about the visual as something important and something we need to be able to talk about. And uh, so it's not an accident that while that's happening, people are now also thinking about comics uh, in a scholarly way. It's uh, At UBC right now, it's interesting, is uh, while for the most part within study, comics are pretty ignored, but the rare book department here 
has been apparently uh, doing as much as they can to hunt down old uh, examples of Vancouver-based comic books, like the small press from the from modern going back to the 1970s. So it's interesting that there is some kind of artifacting happening there. Sure, yeah, and yeah, that's a, that's another sort of significant change, both in sort of museum culture where things that used to be considered trash now are considered to have artifactual value. I mean, newspapers, you know, are a good example of this. Like in the sort of glory age of newspapers, uh, golden age of newspapers, libraries would throw them out and just microphone them because they didn't consider them to have mm-hmm. as artifacts. Whereas now, I guess, you know, it's the same as comics. Now that they're sort of disappearing from... <laughs> uh, from wor- the world, we can appreciate them more. You know, like uh, you'll never know how much I love you till I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> and so the um, so, so so there is this like awareness of yeah, comics as artifacts, the pamphlet form, the uh, um, and and uh, um, also an awareness within sort of literary studies of books as artifacts. You know, like that um, there used to be a sort of almost. Uh, you know, before sort of Marshall McLuhan, uh, people wouldn't consider the contents of, uh, people would only consider the contents of books to be important. What's important in Dickens are the words on the page, and whether they appear in a paperback or a hardcover or were serialized in a magazine is not important. Whereas now, there's a greater awareness that the sort of, you know, the physical context in which um, a work of art appears in is very important. Uh, and then comics benefit from that, because they are they're preeminently an art form um, that is also an artifact. Well, it's interesting you're talking about the serialization. Um, like, I was did a little interview with uh, Jaime Hernandez on the weekend, and one thing I've noticed, they've always been serialized in the Love and Rockets, and now they're doing this annual format, and I was talking about how that can now limit and change the storytelling, and I don't think people really keep that in mind when you're looking at serialized stuff, but how that way it is published affects how the story is told and how you're going to end up with this final product. So, just tossing that out. Yeah, yeah no, that's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, and the Hernandez brothers are a really good example of that. I mean, in some ways, um, they, and also someone like uh, Dave Sim, sort of came at that moment right before the graphic novel, where they, they were sort of at this, you know, liminal moment um, with one foot in the sort of pamphlet form and one foot looking forward to the graphic novel, and it, that's what sort of makes them interesting as artists, that they, they both um, are part of the older comics culture of serialization and the newer culture of the graphic novel. Um, and actually, I think that's one reason why the Hernandez brothers, and perhaps also Dave Sim, haven't received the critical attention they kind of merit. Like, I think that the academics are much more comfortable with the graphic novel because it's a book, right? Yeah. <laughs> so most is a book, <laughs> even though it was originally serialized, but it's, and it's, most people were aware of it first as a book. Uh, it's got a spine. Exactly. And Fun Home are also on that list. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that the uh, American-born Chinese. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so things that first appear as books are somehow much more easier to sort of process. And and I think that, like, I mean, the Hernandez brothers should be written about much more than they are. I mean, they're hugely interesting uh, figures and and very like um, uh, very interesting artists uh, with like a huge body of work. Uh, but I mean, I think the fact that they they have like one foot still in that pamphlet world has like sort of prevented the uh, academics from uh, quite understanding what they're up to. There are there are two um, extremes that I think Jeet and I tried to avoid with the reader. Uh, one is the extreme of celebrating that which is popular. 
So, you know, we don't have any essays in the volume that have anything like a kind of, um, you know, Todd McFarlane is the greatest artist ever kind of rhetoric. And on the other hand, (laughs) what Todd is God is shorthand. Um, It's written by Todd. It's it's good there because it's popular, you know, that kind of argument. And then on the other hand, um, there's the danger that academics will seize on a very small number of comics and say these are the titles worth writing about. And, And we're not doing comic studies. We're writing about Mouse or we're writing about Fun Home or Persepolis, and I think the reader is, is designed to be eclectic enough so that the student who's thinking about a paper on a, on a cartoonist uh, using the book, say, for theoretical inspiration, uh, wouldn't be encouraged to either write about that, which is simply popular, or write about a small number of works. I mean, I think we've tried to model a kind of comic scholarship that can uh, uh, look at small press material, genre, um, you know, mass entertainment, and a variety of material in between. I'm going to take a quick break right now because I have a bunch of questions going along with that, and I think we'll dive into a really long discussion. So I'm going to play a quick song, and then we'll jump back right in talking about the the study of the actual books themselves. Um, CITR 1.9 FM, we'll be right back.
CITR 101.9 FM. That was The Boss with the Marocker. I think the Rivers was the album? Uh, the River, yeah. The River. Yeah, I, I only uh, chose that because there. I think there is some reference to superheroes in that song. <laughs> Does London's Calling have any reference? Uh, no, but I uh, <laughs> spent some time in London, so I thought uh, uh, oh, that's it would nice. be appropriate. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the songs uh, chosen have... I'm hidden meaning. There we go. Um, CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Stud Show, the radio show about comics. Um, just to let folks know some upcoming stuff on the Ink Studs. Next week, I will be uh, playing an interview uh, someone we are just talking about with uh, Jaime Hernandez. Um, it was just a short half-hour thing, but really, uh, it, it shows me why I love... Not that you guys aren't great. I'm loving this conversation. But being able to interview someone uh, face-to-face makes such a difference. And I really got to... I don't know. A good, a good dynamic chat with them, so I'm really happy with that. Uh, Mike Dawson will also be on that week. Um, the following week, I think uh, Chris Butcher and probably uh, playing an interview with Chris Brandt, who uh, has a DVD uh, featuring a whole bunch of interviews with uh, different uh, alternative comic creators like Craig Thompson and uh, Jim Woodring and sorts of other folks called, I think it's called The Independence. And it's, uh, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm looking forward to watching it. It looks really interesting. And then other upcoming guests, uh, someone's already been mentioned, uh, Peter Cooper, I just uh, emailing back and forth with him, and he's going to come on at some point. Gene uh, Yang, who we're about to talk about his book, uh, American Born Chinese, and Derek Kirk Kim are going to come on to talk about their new book for the wonderful first second and more. Don't forget to check out the website, inksuds.com, because I've been doing something really crazy and reviewing a comic every day, and I've already gone nuts with it. Um, comic Studies Reader. Jeet here, Kent Worcester, and uh, we were just talking about uh, specific books and how they're kind of people are choosing them um, within the academic study or setting for study, um, citing that uh, people like uh, the Hernandez brothers and Dave Sim, except I'm going to argue the reason Dave Sim isn't really being approached academically. I don't think it's because it's the format, and I'm not even going to go for where you're thinking going to go. I think it's just inaccessible. Yeah, no, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, I actually, if I, I could have a much longer discussion of why Dave hasn't been as written about as much as he can. And, and part of it is also, he really comes out of comics culture. I mean, Cerebus was, came through out of the direct market, and there's, like, all these, like, references to, like, Wolverine and the Sandman. And, and I mean, to really appreciate Cerebus, you really have to understand the history of the direct market for the last 30 years. <laughs> years of have that knowledge but not not everyone uh, years of indoctrination <laughs> yeah, yeah in some ways i think dave is going to become a sort of figure like william blake uh oddly enough i mean I think, uh, you know I mean, blake has like early sort of great poems but he also has these very esoteric poems that have their own sort of mythology and uh require a huge amount of elucidation and the sort of you know a uh, huge body of commentary built around it, and I sort of feel like uh, Dave um, uh, has the ironic fate of, uh, for cartoonists of being like, you know, requiring more commentary than, you know, uh, Finnegan Wake. <laughs> <laughs> is that possible? Yeah. Um, another person like that that I would see is, and I tried doing something on uh, Gary Panter's uh, Purgatory book. Um, I don't know if either of you have tried to read it. Oh, sure. I, I actually reviewed it for the National Post, but I, I sort of know what you mean. I mean, I think that's a book that hasn't really gotten uh, uh, the attention it deserves. And then sort of for similar reasons with Dave. Like, I actually think 
Uh, actually, actually, a friend of mine who did a PhD in Shakespeare said that to, to write about you know Panther, you almost you'd have to do another PhD. That's you have to read everything that Panther read. That's what I was thinking. Like I thought uh, I was doing a class in biblical and classical literature and its kind of influence, and so I thought, well, this would be perfect. I'll pick a page from this, and so I did a presentation on the pages, and I was just like trying to like pinpoint how each myth that he throws and there's like five different myths in one panel being covered and there's different uh translations he picked to do that myth and it's just like i i couldn't do it it was a mess and the, the teacher's like that's a great idea but yeah not. yeah yeah no i mean i think that there is uh i mean kent sort of um uh hit on this topic and we can perhaps say a, a bit more uh, both of us but i mean there is um when, when something like comics Start being taken up in the academy uh, and by museums. There's a sort of instant rush for canonization. And in, I'm hearing a lot of noise. What was that? Oh, is that? I don't think is. Um, Sorry, that's coming from me. It's taken over everything for a second there. Oh, okay. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess what I was trying to get at was how there's um, a sort of danger uh, in like having a very narrow list. For, uh, of great works for comics. And you see this often when people first wrote about Crazy Cat or first wrote about Mouse. They would say, you know, comics are trash, but this Crazy Cat is really great. Or, <laughs> you know, comics are trash, but Mouse is really great. But, I mean, I think to understand Crazy Cat, you actually have to know the sort of broader history of comics. You have to appreciate Mud and Jaff and these other comics that Terraman was coming out of. Uh, and the same with, like, Mouse. I mean, I think to understand Mouse, like, to have a broader knowledge of uh, Harvey Kurtzman and all the people that Spiegelman was... Uh, um, Bernie Krigstein. Yeah, Bernie Krigstein, all the people that influenced uh, Spiegelman is really important. And, and Spiegelman, uh, his, um, he really uses the vocabulary of comics. So, to, so I think that the part of the danger of ha- canonization, which is, yeah, I guess, a four, um, $20 word <laughs> for, for you know, list-making, for making a list of great works, is that it can like sort of narrow... The, um, the approach that you take. And I think, uh, I mean, Kent might want to speak on this, but I think one of the virtues of our study is that we don't go in for sort of premature canonization. We mm-hmm. don't uh, go, if that sounds a bit like premature ejaculation. <laughs> uh, but if you don't uh, go for, uh, you know, I mean, we have a discussion of mouse, but we also have discussions of Mexican comics, and we have discussions of gag cartooning. So I think that it's really important to have the broad view. Uh, but but maybe, yeah, Kent wants to talk about that. And I think, you know, Gene and I are very much um, thinking along the same lines. Um, I would have used the same phrase, premature canonization, <laughs> uh, as something to be avoided. On the other hand, um, I think Gene and I both agree that it's important to give people tools to help evaluate comics. Mm-hmm. and. You know, uh, I think come, some people who write about comics out of a cultural studies tradition are uncomfortable with the sort of task of assigning value, of saying this page works or this story works and this one isn't as successful. Um, and I definitely didn't want to end the book with students thinking, well, you can say whatever you want about any comic. Yeah. Right? That... Um, if some comics are worth writing about, they're writing about more or less for historical reasons, because certain social changes are reflected in those pages. Uh, 
some number of comics are particularly um, noteworthy, not just for whatever historical value, but also for uh, sort of formal artistic and craft value. And um, I guess Jeet and I are part of a kind of swing away from the kind of um, abdication from evaluation that I associate with cultural studies in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, like we uh, perhaps uh, one way of talking about this is just to give your listeners a sense of what's in the book and mm-hmm. describe the sort of because we, we spend a lot of time in sort of organizing the book, not just in choosing uh, what's going to be in there, but like uh, organizing it into sort of thematic sections. And and the beginning of the book is sort of historical considerations. So it's like it's you know you want people to know about Rudolf Topher and the early comic strips and EC Comics to get a sense of history. Uh, but the, the comics in that section aren't necessarily the um, uh, don't necessarily have to be great works of art. They're just historically important works. Well, like you have um, the much maligned uh, Frederick Wortham in there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because I think he's actually very historically very important. I mean, whatever you want to say about the merits of his <laughs> work, he was the first person to write a book about comics, comic books. Right? Yeah. Which is, uh, I mean, that's a sort of an achievement. Um, and then, yeah, we, the other sections uh, sort of try to break down comics into uh, um, uh, looking at the sort of craft and the formal issues, uh, how people uh, use, uh, you know, word balloons uh, or um, uh, use uh, uh, sound uh, effects uh, and how the, um, the eye moves across the page. And, and then to building on the sort of the use of uh, the different formal aspects, we have a third section that's on sort of... Uh, comics as culturally significant, uh, looking at the ways in which, like, sort of um, Mexican comics really reflected the sort of tensions of that country as it was trying to come into uh, of the modern world and the tension between traditionalism and, and uh, modernism. Uh, and then in the final section, uh, which speaks to Kent's point, is really about evaluation. It's about people who are looking at, like, Mouse, looking at the work of Chris Ware, um, uh, looking um, at the Karl Barks' uh, 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 Uncle Scrooge comics and looking at these as works of art and trying to evaluate uh, what it is that these specific creators achieved. So I, I think that um, uh, we really... Um, but I, I think if you look at the structure of the book, I mean, it sort of it has an argument, like, that, you know, you have to have tools for evaluation. So you have to have a sense of history. You have to have a sense of... Uh, the formal techniques, and you have to have some sense of cultural placement, and then the sort of evaluation grows out of that or is enriched by that. Um, I, I don't know if Kent wants to go with that sort of teleological... No, that but, sounds right. <laughs> but, but <laughs> it does, the book is very much designed to have an argument uh, about how, you know, like the ways to approach comics and to emphasize that, yeah, the question of, you know, is this, a, is this comic good? is still a very pertinent question. And that's the same thing I hear in every class. Make sure you have an argument. <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> so some of the... Um, actually, first, we were talking before about... Um, you guys were saying about the avoidance of uh, pre-canonization. Um, what are some works that you feel should, but aren't necessarily... Like, we are mentioning Love and Rockets. What are some other ones that you would say should be included in possibly getting people to kind of understand the wider grasp of what is comics in that setting? 
Uh, well, I can suggest a few. I mean, I think um, one uh, cartoonist that doesn't get written about a lot, uh, who's very interesting, is John Stanley, uh, who's mm-hmm. just a sort of bread-and-butter cartoonist who worked for Dell Comics, the same as Karl Barks, but uh, John Stanley wrote and uh, did the layouts for the Little Lulu comics. And he did a lot of other comics, you know, and then almost all of them were licensed properties, like Nancy and Sluggo. <laughs> and uh, the interesting <laughs> thing about John Stanley is, like, he's actually one of the best writers in the history of, like, commercial comics. Like, uh, virtually any story he does has really sprightly, has, like, you know, vivid characters, a real sense of wordplay. Um, and he's the sort of figure that I, I feel like academics don't pay a lot of attention to. Like, you know, someone who's not um, doing spectacular formal effects like Bernie Christine or is, like, you know, obviously... Um, artistically significant, like Spiegelman. He's, he's like, he's, he's, he's a real craftsman. He's a sort of, um, I don't know, Howard Hawks of comics, you know, like somebody <laughs> who's just, uh, or the, uh, uh, he could be compared to someone like, you know, the writers of I Love Lucy, you know? Like, like they're doing something that has a high level of craft and is, like, very entertaining and sort of gets avoided for that reason. Like, like people prefer to, like, um, uh, so, so I, I, I feel like uh, someone like John Stanley, uh, who's getting a l- little bit more attention. I mean, Dark Horse is reprinting the Little Lulu books. And there's that series coming out. Yeah, and then Brian Corley are going to do like a, a series uh, republishing his books like Melvin Monster and the Nancy uh, comic books that he did. So I think he's getting more attention now. And I, I think that that's the type of figure that really uh, deserves more attention. I know uh, Seth is a big uh, Oh, yeah, yeah I, 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 John his... Stanley had a huge uh, influence on Seth. I mean, if you look at Wimbledon Green... Um, there's like all sorts of ways in which Wimbledon Green was influenced by John Stanley's work. I mean, the, the, the character Wimbledon Green is sort of like Tubby from the Little Lulu comics, except he's grown up. He has, he has the same sort of egotism and uh, rich fantasy mm. life. Uh, but, but, but Kent, yeah, well, what are some of the works that you think should get more attention? There's so many different ways of answering this, and, you know, it really is part of the you hear Kent Worcester shtick that, <laughs> that we don't we don't want to ever imply that we know what's out there or that all the stories have been told and now you have to kind of reproduce the wisdom of the great critics. Mm-hmm. The amount of material that has not been written about seriously just staggers the staggers the men, the imagination. Um, you know, when I was writing things down, I wrote down a bunch of um, 40s and 50s illustrators who I think deserve more attention. Um, you know, I'm I'm very fond of of good writing on on line work, on what makes a guitar, a, a guitar cartoonist line distinctive. Um, I'd love to read something good on Virgil Parch, David Lowe, Sid Hoff. I think there are probably these great draftsmen of the you know mid century period who um, we think of as illustrators, but who also tell stories visually. Um, I think I'm always amazed how uh, when people talk about the great graphic novels that Hicksville never comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the fun. graphic I novel of graphic novels. Hicksville more than uh, any other uh, single comic. Um, but lately, having been inspired by Jeet's work, partly to start collecting early 20th century stuff, and having before that gone through a superhero phase, my latest uh, reading tends to be mini-comics. And um, there, there's probably too many names to mention, but I'm particularly fond of uh, uh, somebody named Tom Kaczynski, who's coming oh, yeah. out of uh, Mome these days, yeah. and uh, who I think is uh, 
probably going to do something remarkable in the next few years. Well, MOAB is actually quite fascinating as a, as a little artifact itself because it's really turned into quite the breeding ground for interesting new young folks who otherwise you'd only been able to find if you pick up their mini directly from them at a comic convention. Right, right. Yeah, yeah there is, as, as we have been editing, right? I mean, as this book, in the period since this book has come out, the alternative pamphlet comic book has more or less disappeared with a whole number of mm-hmm. big-name creators saying that they are not going to be published, such as Kevin Huzenga, saying they're not going to be publishing uh, you know, regular uh, comics again, but they're going to be doing book projects and minis and so on. Well, at least he's still doing minis. That makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. actually, I mean, yeah, I know Kent actually mentioned a really interesting point. I mean, the whole, uh, there's, there's a lot of, like, areas of the history of comics that don't get attention. I mean, if you look at something like the underground comics, there's a lot of books on Crumb, yeah. you know, a lot of interviews with Crumb, but, like, you know, the people, you know, where's the book on Justin Green? You know, where, where's the book <laughs> on Kim Dice? I mean, Kim is still, like, doing a lot of comics, but his work hasn't really been studied or, you know, written about as a career. And uh, he's out of the whole crowd, and I, I've read you writing this somewhere, I think, is that he's really, you know, in the 70s, not so much, but now he's the underground guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, he's, he's really come to the fore as, like, one of the major achievements. But I think broadly, I mean, I think Patrick Rosencrantz has had a very good book on the mm-hmm. underground comics, and I think there's been a few others. He, and he's, he's working on a book on Rand Holmes. Yeah, it's it's written. Yeah, yeah, which is going to come out <laughs> fairly soon. Uh, so, but I think that the, I mean, aside, I think the underground comics as a phenomena are still sort of not written about enough. Like, I think... The whole underground scene is fascinating. I would love to read a book like, you know, someone like David Haydu, you know, who did uh, about the Ten Cent Plague, like a writer like that who would interview all the old underground people and really recreate the scene. Uh, I think that would be, like, a fascinating project. Like, they, um, I think uh, what Kent said about the mini-comics is really interesting because there was a whole culture of mini-comics in the 70s and 80s, and you can find out a little bit about it if you go through old issues of the Comics Journal, but I think that would make a great sort of topic, like, like, what you know, like the the way mini comics were in the early days, where it was just like a bunch of you know guys and girls, you know, uh, mailing each other stuff, uh, uh, and uh, and 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 how it turned into like a very um, a long lasting and vibrant art form. Uh, so I think it's always amazing in the sort of history of comics, just like how many um, interesting people uh, and interesting works don't get written about. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I think, um, uh, I mean, I can't mention some of the earlier newspaper cartoonists, and, like, there's a, there's all sorts of newspaper cartoonists that, like, you know, aren't part of the sort of Milton Kniff, um, uh, Alex Raymond, uh, Hal Foster canon, but are, are really interesting. I mean, there's a guy named Gillius Williams who did a sort of New Yorker cartoonist who did domestic strip, and I wrote about him for comics art, but... He did a really rich body of work, and it's sort of amazing that uh, he hasn't been written about more. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think I sort of would um, want to agree with something Kemp said, which is that, you know, like, uh, what's interesting is, like, just how much work is out there that, like, has only received, like, a glance, you know? Can I just build on something uh, G yeah, said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About the underground comics, I mean, I also think about this geographically. I think the story of underground comics has been told through the lens of the West Coast. Yeah. And, you know, uh, underground was very important, not only in New York City, 
Chicago. Um, not only on the West Coast, but also in Austin and Madison and the sort of you know Ann Arbor, the big Chicago. college towns. Yeah, Chicago was a big um, one. That's where a lot of the a lot of guys came out too. Exactly, and um, you know, as long as you're telling the story of Crum, you're going to keep telling the story of of uh, people moving west in order to be free. Yeah, and that is only going to capture one side of the underground comics phenomenon. Like, so that's an, that to me is an example where some very strong narrative becomes the sort of conventional wisdom way before people have really thought it through. Well, like, and so when we talk about under, underground comics, we almost automatically think of the West Coast, and you have to kind of historically do the work to reorient people and to and to make them think of geography as a sort of narrative rather than just as a uh, sort of fact. Well, the East Village Other is such, like, an important document in itself of history in the comics. And, like, Kim Deitch didn't even move to the West Coast until I think it was too late. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was, like, uh, 1970 for him. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. And actually, I mean, if you're talking about geography, like, I think Canadian comics are, like, hugely underwritten about. I, I was thinking about this because the uh, new Doug Wright book that uh, Seth and Brad McKay it's gorgeous. Uh, put together... Uh, I just got it, and I've been going it's over gorgeous. it. And it's just like amazing. I mean, he, he, here's a cartoonist who did a, like a large body of work for like many magazines and newspapers over 40 years, and it's sort of remembered by you know Canadians who are over 45 or over 50, <laughs> but not not but, but not uh, uh, anyone else. And so when people are going to see this book, it's going to be a revelation. It's like he's a, here's a cartoonist who's on the level of you know Hank Ketchum or. Um, uh, some of the American uh, uh, syndicated cartoonists, uh, and and has a beautiful like style, and uh, we we're just finding out about him. And I think uh, there's a bunch of other cartoonists that Seth is very interested in, like Jimmy Freeze, um, uh, who are uh, were very big in the past in Canada, who have been forgotten, and who are just waiting to be resurrected. Uh, and I, and I, I, I yeah, want to emphasize Grant Holmes again because as, as you said. The, uh, the biography is done, and I think that's going to come to people as a real revelation because he's really a part of this, you know, underground scene in Vancouver, uh, and he's sort of been marginalized and forgotten. And when people see all of his work and see the biographical context that Patrick Rosencrantz is going to give, mm-hmm. I think it's going to like be an eye opener. Well, one thing that's really interesting with me um, is kind of the literary tradition passed down through comics and like someone like Rand Holmes is a perfect example of literary tradition being passed down or like comics tradition being passed down because he's definitely like the child of the Wally Wood school of comics and then this him in turn he's had a lot of influence a lot of post underground folks through his stuff and death rattle and compilations like that so yeah yeah no I mean yeah I know Holmes is really interesting for like because he connects with like the sort of the past of EC comics and then uh, with people like uh, uh, Steve Bassad and, and others, like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, so, so I think that um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the point or the the takeaway message that I'd want people to ha- uh, get from what we're talking about is that there are a lot of very interesting cartoonists <laughs> in, in, in the past century and or more, uh, and people, I mean, in some ways, that's why it's an exciting field of study because people have only scratched the surface, you know. And that's something you guys have said from the beginning of our conversation, is that really this captures a certain era of study. 
a lot of ways in the last couple of years, like you were talking about writing for the comic art magazine, which I think is just, to me, the best comics periodical. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even, I don't like know if that's even the appropriate term to use as periodical, but yeah. it's incredible, like the amount of work that Todd puts into that. And it's such a solid piece. Like every article in there, like, you know, I don't like Jim Starlin, but the article on Warlock was fascinating. Oh, yeah, I yeah, know. I mean, I think that's right. I think there's been a whole uh, growth of different venues, uh, uh, partially on the Internet. But, I mean, I think something like comics art reminds us of the value of print culture. Because, I mean, I think what um, Todd did with the magazine is to show that if you're going to write about comics, you know, it, you can't just have, like, a smudgy black and white illustration that doesn't actually, like, uh, refer to anything that is, you talk about in your review, yeah. as some magazines have done in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Surely not. And, uh, I, I think, Nothing that either to, of you I mean, have written for. Does. I mean, I've, I've worked with him, uh, which is really great. Is like if, if, if I do an article um, on Gillius Williams or Frank King, he'll find like you know the, the, the original art, and preferably original art that you know is very tied to what I'm writing about, and you know beautifully scanned, and then so he's really like you know foregrounding the fact that we're talking about a visual art form. Um, actually, but I mean, like, the other approach is okay, too. I mean, like, Comics Comics that Dan Nadell and uh, Tim Hodler uh, and Frank uh, Santoro do. I mean, that's not, it's the opposite end from Comics. <laughs> like a, a, new, a newspaper uh, printed on newsprint, uh, and it does have the smudgy pictures. But I mean, there you have, like, three guys with, like, a really uh, talented, strong sensibility, strong writing style, and a real sort of um, uh, contrarian take mm-hmm. on the history of comics. And it's also, I mean, like, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I love them both. I love comics art, and I love comics comics. I mean, they're they're well, both, like, really interesting. Uh, they're, yeah, they're both completely different takes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Comic, comics art, it's like a love, it's a passion. In comics comics, it's like, it's like they're up for a fight. That's right, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's sort of like... In some ways, Comics Comics is the last sort of underground publication, you know? Like, it is like the East Village Other or the Village Voice, you know? Like, it's like a bunch of guys who are printing out something as cheaply as possible to get it out there, but they, ha- they disagree with a lot of things that are out there, and uh, they're looking for a fight, and, and this is the way that they're going to do it. One co- scrappy. Scrappy <laughs> is the word I'm looking for. Frank and I, we have lots of conversations about the uh, about old comics and just how nowadays folks just don't really understand the influence that all these, you know, like I was talking about traditions and stuff like, mm-hmm. and all these great things in the 80s that people don't even really understand. So we're going to try and do something at uh, TCAF. We're going to do a little panel on our love of old comics. Oh, that, that'll be really nice. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I love hearing Frank uh, talk about comics. And, and then again, I think that's... Um, uh, I mean, I mean, it goes back to something we talked about. I mean, but, like, there are people... I mean, I think it's very easy for someone who's coming outside of comics to appreciate someone like um, uh, Art Spiegelman or appreciate someone like Chris Ware, where you have, like, very strong artists who have very serious concerns and, and, and their merits, like, are, like, like very visible mm-hmm. in the work that they're doing. Um, well, and they come with a with a critical sort of secondary literature that, you know, legitimizes them. That's right, that's right, yeah. But, I mean, like, someone like Alex Toth, you know, doesn't have that, right? No, <laughs> and he's, he's. I was going to actually ask earlier, because when we're talking about these, about, you know, creators, and you're talking about uh, illustrators from the 40s and 50s, and Alex Toth is kind of of that school, not an illustrator, but a yeah. comic guy, but who, who, who 
left this wealth of finely crafted, beautiful work and so much writing on his own work. Who I, th- I, I think he needs to be milked. Go ahead. You were going to say, G. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I think something, something that Frank brings to the table is the fact that um, people, Alex Toth is someone that, you know, you're not going to understand unless you're, like, immersed in comics, and unless you have, that, you know, Frank's sort of love uh, of the history of comics mm-hmm. and of bad comics. I mean, I mean, like, not that, well, I mean, Toth was, uh, he's a fascinating figure for me because visually he's, like, so stunning. Like, he's, like, you know, visually, he's as important to comics as someone like Kubrick would be to the history of film, right? Like, he yeah. really understood the language of comics. Right. And in some then, ways, he's not surpassed. He's not been surpassed in the no, way no. that Crumb hasn't been surpassed. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, but, I mean, on the other hand, if you actually, like, look at the stories, <laughs> I mean, he's often writing, you know, illustrating other people's stories. And even, I mean, the, his best work is probably Bravo for Adventure, which is like a sort of good Errol Flynn movie from 1938. You know, like, is it, <laughs> it's, no, I mean, no, I, 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 I'm probably sounding much more spotty than, than, I, than, than I mean to be. But I mean, I think that a figure like Toth is sort of interesting because it's so problematic. Like, there's such a disjunction between the writing and the art. Mm-hmm. And, and I, mean, it, I mean, Kirby and Ditko, to a certain degree, illustrate this even more so. I mean, you have, again, sort of masterful visual artists uh, with a really strong sense of the world and can really, like, uh, uh, overpowering at times visually and then often doing, like, very idiotic stories. Uh, and and I, I think that, like, that's something that is sort of hard for scholarship to deal with, you know? Like, <laughs> no, I, I, mean, I, I don't want to hear what you would have to say about that. Like, like, how do you deal with a figure like that, you know? Like, you know, like, I mean, Kirby, you can look at something he did um, like the Eternals, you know, which yeah. is, you know, uh, not he's not putting a lot of himself into it, but he has is visually very interesting, very powerful, uh, and but it's basically Chariots of the God, <laughs> done in a fifty cent comic book, printed on newsprint, you know, like with everything off register. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to take that into the museum and say this has to be on the wall. Are you asking my point of view or Kent's point oh, of view? Oh, Kent, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, like, <laughs> Go ahead, yeah, Kent. Don't, don't you feel that's a sort of like, uh, it, I mean, it's an interesting problem. Like, how do you deal with artists that, like, you know, like are coming out of a commercial culture and are doing work that is, like, so uneven? Well, one thing that springs to mind is that, you know, in comics you have an unusual relationship between sort of center and periphery. The mainstream, so-called mainstream, is superheroes, right? So from the point of view of my local comic book store, Persepolis is the periphery, and they Mm -hmm. may have it or they may not, Mm -hmm. but they definitely have the latest Hulk or the latest Batman. Mm -hmm. And in terms of scholarship, they're sort of center and periphery, and there's some figures like Crumb and Spiegelman and Ware who are the subject of, you know, enormous amounts of writing, and then other people who are arguably as important, who are very much on the periphery of scholarship. And, you know, just to make the same point again, Jeet and I didn't want to kind of reinforce the conventional wisdom and say, yes, these are the only people worth writing about. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm I'm not sure the way out of this problem except, you know, more and better. And, um... Um... You know, I'm a little nervous about 
the I'm a little I, I, this is I guess my sort of final point would be I'm a little nervous about a any further academic academization of comics writing I would mm-hmm. be uncomfortable if the kind of essayistic form was lost um, and the um, you know willingness to write about lots of different kinds of cultural activity such as you know Kirby mm-hmm. um, so so it's it's it all comes back to this kind of premature valorization. So you might prematurely value the graphic novel of a certain type or the independent comic of a certain type, and then Kirby disappears. But um, obviously, that doesn't make sense. No. Well, it's a, it, it is interesting because there is definitely a school, um, little micro. I don't want to say school because that's the the thought of of. You know, that whole Spiegelman aesthetic. And, like, in Vancouver, we had the Crazy Art Show, which was definitely a Spiegelman aesthetic with just enough Seth to ground it. Um, and then someone like Jack Kirby is following over that. We we were asking, we asked Spiegelman about that during the opening, and, you know, what's, there's no Kirby, no romance comics. Like, well, I wanted to avoid gender, or not gender, uh, genre specifics. Right. And, but meanwhile, he has war comics, he has biographical you know a lot of autobiographical comics well i'm sorry that's a genre within itself and stuff so maybe i'm just digressing (laughs) a different yeah a different answer to your question i mean how to write well about kirby which may be part of Jeet's question Mm -hmm. the answer must be to have a historical sensibility and not just to treat kirby as you know and as a sort of series of aesthetic um you know, products, but um, uh, I think Jeet and I both like the the recent Schultz and Schultz and Peanuts book, and you know, there's David Nicholas's book, and there's a book that manages to write about commercial history, family life, you know, newspaper cartooning as a set of traditions that Schultz is part of. So it's an integrated historical approach that isn't indifferent to what. Schultz was doing on the page, and that's that. That would be the sort of writing on Kirby I would be interested in, um, not only a kind of formal approach, but yeah. something that yeah. ultimately came back to um, uh, you know thinking about the world through one person's life. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think another example would be the David Hedu's book, The uh, Ten Cent Plague. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is also like beautifully written, and is is you know on the one hand very historical, like looking at the sort of where them and the the campaign against comics in the forties and early fifties. But he also is a fine enough writer that you uh, get a sense of why comics were important. And he talks about you know Eisner's um, influence in developing the form, and he talks about someone like Will Elder and his, his craziness, and <laughs> might find that. You know, like how upsetting and his over-the-top art could have been in like the early fifties, uh, and then which is not just a historical point, but also it's a way of using history to get a greater appreciation. Like I think, um, uh, you know, like for for us to look at the EC comics, they they don't seem that bad because we're used to you know slasher films or whatever. But I mean, I think uh, David managed to tell the story to recapture the shock that these comics had on people. Uh, and also the aesthetic value of that shock. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, 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 yeah, there are ways of writing about um, 
uh, comics uh, that are very rich. And I'm actually very hopeful that there's um, uh, one thing that we're sort of seeing in the last few years, our uh, book writers, uh, you know, uh, who could have imagined like 10 years ago that we'd have like a full dress biography of Charles Schultz that's, you know, based on like countless interviews and uh, and uh, really looking at his life and his art in depth. Uh, that that's um, or uh, uh, you know retelling of the story of EC Comics and Word them, but based on like you know hundreds of interviews done over seven years. So, so one of the um, uh, hopeful things is that there's you know not just academics are studying comics, but uh, as you get a greater literature of comics, you get writers uh, of all sorts. You know who, who are uh, writing about comics. I mean, I, mean, I think of the other example of this are people like Lethem or. Um, Jonathan Lethem, yeah. or, uh, Michael Chabon, who are you know really coming out of their contemporary literature, who are very good writers, uh, but then um, are, are interested in comics because they read them, are still interested in writing comics occasionally, uh, and are you know bringing a sort of real. Um, uh, is, is, I don't want to say literary because that's kind of could be used a bit um, pigeonholy. Yeah, pigeonholy. But I mean, they they have um, they have a sensibility. That's very uh, alive to language, you know. They're, they're bringing in the sort of you know same sensibility that you see in sort of really fine uh, writing of uh, someone like Margaret Atwood or Alice Munro or John Updike, and they're they're you know they're uh, using it to write about comics, and I, I find that very exciting. Um, and that's one way in which the sort of essayistic writing about comics that Kent um, talked about is, is sort of being reborn at this moment, right? Like. We're, 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 I, I think we're actually seeing a sort of flourishing of um, a lot of very high-quality writing about comics, not just um, in universities, but, like, outside of universities. Mm-hmm. One you... book, I'd love to know what you both thought. One book I was really intrigued by was the uh, Michigan book about Jackie Orms, the African-American cartoonist from the 30s and 40s. Um, I don't know if either of you saw it, but... Oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've uh, read it a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, I'm uh, incredibly sympathetic to the idea that there are these, uh, you know, important cartoonists who uh, work over a long period of time, right, for weekly publications, say, for communist publications, anti-communist publications, (laughs) you know, anarchist uh, labor, in her case, African-American papers like the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender. Um, and, you know, comics culture hasn't done a good job of finding these people. That's and her book, I think, does a great job of resurrecting this lost cartoonist whose uh, work, uh, you know, shines a flashlight onto her age. On the other hand, I thought the book completely kind of exaggerated her artistic quality, <laughs> her artistic contribution, let's say. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, compared her to Oliver Harrington, who's also writing for the black press or drawing for the black press, who I think is, you know, in another category altogether. Um, but I suspect there are quite a few cartoonists who deserve books like uh, the one about Jackie Orms. Sure, sure, yeah. I, I think that, uh, I mean, your take on it is pretty close to mine. Um, I think that they're, like, cartoonists who are historically important and are really interesting as um, uh, figures who, like, I would I want to read about who aren't necessarily, you know, like, top-tier aesthetically. Uh, it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like, you know... Well, different. what is a tier? 
huh? you know, even that top tier aesthetic, well, then you're, you, you, you've put a value point yeah. right there. Yeah. But you have to. Yeah, you have to. That would be so, my yeah, feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you fall back into the chaos. Yeah. So, and I think it actually does a sort of disservice to someone like Orms to, like, to, to, to try to judge their work. Um, uh, as part of this aesthetic discussion, I mean, I think that that, that work that has that sort of um, historical resonance has to be. Appro- I mean, it, the avenue of approach that you take is very important. And I, I can think of other cartoonists, um, uh, especially sort of political cartoonists, like uh, uh, from the past, that I think are really valuable. And I'm happy to have like you know uh, books about them and books reprinting their art. Uh, but I'm not like, you know, getting a huge sort of aesthetic thrill from their work that, that I would get from, you know, reading Linda Berry. <laughs> well, that, that brings to a question. What is, what do we see as the comics field? I mean, mm-hmm. Scott McCloud says that comics have to have more than one panel, basically. Like, they have to be a continuation of a story. Um, how, how, like, when you're studying comics or looking at comics in, the, in its own media, do editorial cartoons really fit in? Are they, you know, their own thing in themselves? Do they connect? Like, how do these things work together? And what should be um, I, I'll take a first stab at that. Sure. You know, I, I'm definitely in the uh, uh, broad rather than narrow camp when it comes to defining comics. And, and I'm that way partly because... Um, sort of methodologically, you can miss things if you're reading, if your definition is too narrow. I mean, for one thing, you do get cartoonists who move across genres and if you're, if you're, and, 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 and formats. And if you are interested in a particular cartoonist and they have a period where they're drawing editorial cartoons, it would be nonsensical to say, oh, I'm not going to look at those. I'm only interested in their work that has sequences. Yeah. Um, and then there's kind of formal and internal kinds of questions uh, where, you know, many editorial cartoonists use the comic strip format. Mm-hmm. And, that, and then, of course, the other way around, you have comic strip artists like Trudeau, famously, whose work sometimes shows up on the editorial page and who might be called an editorial cartoonist. But he's doing um, a long, long, long story. But you also story. have implicit panels in editorial. You, you know, so even the notion of the single-panel cartoon, it seems to me, is suspect. And there's this sort of assumption that editorial cartooning is, is single-panel, which I'm not actually convinced of. Um, yeah, well, and I then I think, think the final argument for me is that what editorial cartooning and caricature and single panel gag cartooning does is it encapsulates. And that's the craft, I think, that's at the heart of cartooning and comics storytelling, even in the most sort of extended format. I mean, no matter how many pages you're using, you're still encapsulating reality. And uh, the distinction there is from simplification, right? People often say, well, this cartoon simplifies this story. Um, when in fact I think encapsulate captures at least you know good cartooning. Um, so that's a very long-winded way of saying yes. I think editorial <laughs> cartoons should be part of this, just as single-panel, genuinely single-panel cartoons should be, and just as like the family circus. 
certain kinds of caricature. I mean, at least I'm open to. Uh, we include a chapter on caricature in our uh, book on the in the, in the reader, and I think we were right to do so. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with uh, basically Kent's, uh, what Kent is saying, and I I want to really emphasize that. I mean, I think uh, Scott McLeod's approach is very interesting, and there's a, a lot to be said for it, but it sort of misses out on the fact that even in a gag cartoon, uh, there's sequence and time that's sort of built into it. Like, a lot of gag cartoons are built on, around reaction, you know? Like, even something as simple as a family circus, where, you know, PJ will say something inappropriate, right? <laughs> like, it, implicit in that cartoon is that sort of reaction of the parent to what's going to happen next. Saying, what's going to happen next, right? And you don't, and it, in fact, it actually is a strength that you don't have two panels, right? Because the cartoonist is confident enough in the reader that the, the, they can just, you know, have this incident and know that the uh, the future or the past is implied, right? Uh, so um, I think, uh, I mean, definitions are always really hard, um, especially with something like comics. And I think perhaps one way to think about it is that comics aren't like a single static thing. They're like a family thing, right? Like, it's mm. not like a species where you can say, this is homo sapiens. <laughs> it's like, uh, if you can imagine an evolutionary family So what's the Neanderthal in this story? That's it. They, they are Neanderthal. Trajan's column. We don't want to name names. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, and they're primate ancestors. Todd, and, if you're listening. Uh, and, 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 yeah, no, I mean, like, just as humans are part of a, you know, evolutionary family tree that includes many things, com- comics are that. So editorial cartoons... Um, you know, are, are not the same as comic books, but they're kissing cousins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I, um, th- I mean, that's the approach that we took in the comic studies reader. We have, uh, you know, we have everything from, you know, Carl Barks's Duck Comics to Mouse to, uh, you know, gag cartoons to caricature. Um, uh, and uh, I can see the critique of someone saying that's too wide-ranging and promiscuous, but I mean, like, I, it does seem like intuitively when people talk about comics, they do sort of bring in all these, all these other things. And, and uh, I mean, the historical connection is really important. I mean, like, a lot, Walt Kelly, you know, did a lot of editorial cartooning, and we right. can't pretend that that was not unrelated to what he did with Pogo as a comic strip, right? So uh, Harriman did editorial cartoons and sports cartoons, and he also did Crazy Cat. And, I mean, I, I don't think that's like, it's not like an accident, you know? It's not like, oh, Winston Churchill was also a painter. <laughs> it's like, Harriman's <laughs> like uh, editorial cartooning is connected with his comic strip. Well, yeah. like uh, Ralph Steadman, I think, is a yeah. unique example in, in something like that, where, I mean, he doesn't really get talked about much within the comics aesthetic, but, I mean, he's he, he is very much a part of it. He just happens to be outside of it in some ways. Yeah, you know, I think that's a good example. And uh, I mean, I, you had uh, Stedman on your show, and that was like one of your a really great interview. That was a golden moment for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I think that's some some uh, one of these people that uh, he has a, he does get a lot of attention. He's very well known, but maybe in the comics world, insufficiently known. Like I mm-hmm. think comics, you know, would be richer if people were looking at someone like Stedman more. or Searle. Yeah. So, well, gentlemen. I think we're at the end of our time. Oh, well, thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, that was a really great talk. <laughs> Do you have any last comments? Our book is available on Amazon. There we go. The book is A Comic Studies Reader, uh, edited by Jeet here and Kent Worcester. And um, 
it, I, I gotta say, as I I sourced it already or said it already in a in an essay. Oh great! So, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> that's yeah. I'll oh prob- dear. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, uh, hopefully, I. Uh, You've condemned yourself to a life of poverty, young man. Oh, I'm a history major. Of course, I have. I'm going to be the smartest barista on the block. Um, so, thank you very much, guys, and uh, I look forward to uh, more stuff. And uh, and we'll, we'll see. I'll see you at the TCAF. We'll see. I'll see you at TCAF. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to your uh, talk with the. Uh, at the at the Doug Wright Awards, you'll be doing a talk with Chris Oliveris and Brad McKay and Seth about that's, the Doug Wright book. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and uh, perhaps we can do a show on the Doug Wright. Uh, oh, oh, I, oh, I see. I think uh, you'd probably want Seth and Brad. I've been talking to Brad about it. And yeah. we, he has some some great ideas. So I'm. Uh, it's something I think I'm going to want to include in my uh, Canadian Focus Month in July. So. Oh, great! Excellent. There we go. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. And have a swell uh, evening. Okay. Thanks. Great. Bye. Bye. As mentioned before, uh, Comic Studies Reader out from uh, University of Mississippi Press, uh, University Press of Mississippi, I should say. It's a really great book, and I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, up next is The French Connection. Um, there we go. I think I'm done. I- I've said all I want to say. CITR 1.9 FM. <laughs> Tarzan wasn't a ladies man He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that Quick as a cat in the jungle But Clark Kent, now there was a real gent he would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme Dumb as an ape doing nothing Superman never made any money for